Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Heinz Mayonnaise. You may forget what happened three seasons ago on that show everyone's talking about, but you will never forget a delicious BLT made with unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise. Slather it onto a mouth-watering turkey club, mix it into a luscious garlic aioli, or layer it on a thick cheddar cheeseburger, and because of the unforgettable creaminess, hours later, you'll be telling everyone within earshot just how good it was. Try something new. Try unforgettably creamy Heinz mayonnaise. And the new Heinz mashups, Mayo Chup, Mayo Q, Mayo Must, and Cranch. Hey guys, thank you for listening to today's episode of The Watch. And it was a really, really fun show today. I was joined by Sean Fennessy, my buddy over here at The Ringer. And we were joined by one of our buddies, Brian Raftery, who has a new book in stores called Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. It's an account of some of your favorite movies from that year and also an account of how movies were made back then and the way they reflected the world the Y2K mania the Clinton administration just the the everything that was sort of going on and how it was reflected on the big screen and it also talks about a bygone era but also has plenty of people who are still incredibly relevant today from David Fincher Steven Soderbergh Wes Anderson um, Spike Jones tons of people Brian did an incredible job on this book. It has the readability of a great magazine feature, but it has the depth of research and scholarship of an academic, frankly. It's just an incredible, incredible uh, addition to your movie book library. I, I really cannot recommend it highly enough. So Sean and I talked to Brian, and then later in the show, I spoke with the filmmaker Roxanne Benjamin, who's one of my favorite Uh, horror movie makers out there. Roxanne has been a producer behind the scenes making things like VHS earlier in the decade, and then she sort of made the move to becoming a filmmaker herself, working on a couple of anthology movies like Southbound um, and XX, and now she has her feature Body at Brighton Rock, which is available this weekend, which is this really cool... It's kind of a survival story. It's kind of a little bit of an 80s horror vibe, but it's about uh, a young woman who's working as a forest ranger... And essentially goes out to work one day out out in a national park and gets lost and gets kind of too separated and comes across, as you can tell from the title, a body. And things go increasingly wrong from there. Roxanne did an amazing job at this movie. It was a really, really cool watch. And I spoke with her at this year's South by Southwest Festival, and we chatted a little bit about the making of this movie and just the state of making horror movies in general. So it was a really cool conversation. So stay tuned for my conversations with Brian Raftery and Sean Fennessy, and then later, Roxanne Benjamin. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan, and I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me in the studio today is Ringer Editor-in-Chief Sean Fennessy. What's up? Hey, man. And our buddy... <laughs> the author of Best Movie Year Ever, Brian Raftery, here to talk to us about the year in movies 1999, the year in movies 2019, <laughs> and everything in between. What's up, Brian? Thanks How you for doing, guys? Us. Thanks for having me. Hey, this Brian. is awesome. Brian, the book's been out for like a week. About a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think it's better than the Mueller report? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's 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 breezier, I think. <laughs> it really is breezier. Yeah. yeah. Arguably is. more well-reported, too. <laughs> Could be, yeah. Brian's it, book it, is this amazing account of one of the most crucial... Well, actually, I'll put it in his words. The most unruly, influential, and unrepentantly pleasurable film year of all time. And it is both an act of deep scholarship and incredibly <laughs> readable uh, <laughs> pop culture writing. And it's it's just great to have Brian here. We've known each other for a really long time. The three of us have known each other for a really long time from back in our New York days. And uh, I can think of no two people I'd rather be chatting about movies with today. I just want to get all of Brian's info. Brian's been literally (laughs) reporting on movies that we care about so much for how many years now? When did you start doing this? I think I started, I think the first interview was January 2017. Okay. So it was super quick. Yeah. Who was the first interview? I think it was John August, who was one of the first people. John August and Kimberly Pierce were the first people to say hello or say yes, which was great. They were also the first person to say hello. But yeah, they were the first people to say it, to say they do it. And then... The whole reporting process is the more names you get. It's like any piece you do where it's like the more names you get, you can go to another person and say, hey, I've talked to Steven Soderbergh. I talked to David Fincher. And then you sort of get the sense that they're all kind of back-channeling with one another. Yeah. And eventually – but you do need like – you do need those people who will say yes right away, which is really great. And I think it spoke to the fact that these people were all really busy. A lot of them are making TV now, which is something we can talk about, like trying to fit in these TV production schedules to talk to these filmmakers. But I think they did all realize that this was kind of a particularly interesting year, even when they were living it. Yeah, I mean, that was – one of the fascinating things, there, there's so many interesting themes that emerge from reading these 
in some ways it's like uh, a series of like really deeply reported features about these movies, but they tie together to tell this story. One of the ones I think I'm sure Sean and I are most interested in is this idea of a, of a generation of filmmakers coming of age mm. and getting a shot. And some of them are because they have independent films that have really broken through. Some of them are because Terry Semmel at Warner Brothers just was like, <laughs> I just like you, kid. Here's $60 million. Make yeah. your dreams come true. But this feeling that this is a point in time when really adventurous, imaginative, interesting filmmakers were getting big checks to pursue original content, specifically because studios felt like yeah. their sequels and retreads were not getting traction in the box office. Yeah, I think that's one thing. You know, people think of the late 90s and now we're 20 years away. It's like, oh, Titanic and L.A. Confidential and Out of Sight. And it's like, the late 90s was also Batman and Robin. It was The Odd Couple 2. It was like Lost in Space, which was not a great... I know that it has a lot of fans <laughs> online because I made fun of it and got beat up a little bit. But like, there was a lot of sequels, a lot of TV remakes. So I think the studio executives, to their credit, I think the filmmakers had all grown up watching or reading about the Easy Riders, Raging Bull generation and want to make those kind of movies. And I think these studio executives were like, we need to make money because these are big companies, but also we want to be proud of what we're doing in some way. Yeah. So I think there was both a need to a little bit of a market correction, both economically and creatively, because they were, you know, if you look at all the franchises that were kind of not doing well by the end of the 90s, like Alien was kind of losing it. Babe 2 did not exactly build Batman a had tanked, kind of. Batman had tanked. Yeah. Like, a lot of these franchises, Lethal Weapon 4 did okay, but it felt like they basically broke even on it. They were making these really, they're paying tons of money to make these sequels. And so, I think everyone's kind of like, we need to do something different. And what is it? It's like, what's going on with the independent world? What's going on with music videos? What's going on with commercials? There was all this talent out there to pull from. Does it feel coincidental to you that it all reaches ahead in this exact year or is was there actually market forces where you could sense that the person who ran Warner Brothers and the person who ran Sony and the person who ran Disney felt like there was some sort of anxiety some angst happening around the kinds of movies they were making and why they weren't working as well I think it's it's probably a little more coincidental but it's less fun to think of it that way like I do think that if you sort of look back at the 90s and late 90s and have this idea of well there's these two things going on one is that the industry's in this weird state where a lot of the creative momentum is, you know, the movies that we all loved in college and high school, which is like Pulp Fiction and Hoop Dreams and Boogie Nights and really young filmmakers. And at the same time, the idea the century's going to end and we're all going to have this kind of big deadline in front of us and maybe we do something kind of interesting to go out on a big note. But I do think there was, if you look at the 90s, like the New York Times Magazine did a really interesting cover story like in 97 maybe that was like the two Hollywoods and how like, you know, it was Matt, it was it was Ben Affleck and Tom Hanks on the cover. And it's like these are these two worlds that are at yeah. odds. And it's like <laughs> actually by that point, they were kind of already kind of coming together. Yeah. It's like Vin Diesel was in Saving Private Ryan. It's like these the, the, those worlds were kind of mixing. So you can kind of see as you watch like the sort of late 90s move along, the kind of movies they were making and the kind of risks that they were sometimes taking, they were definitely trying to do something new. But I think by 97, 98, when these movies were all in production at one point, people were like, we've got to make something a little bit better than this. Like, we have to get some new ideas out there and get new filmmakers. Yeah, and I think that there was a, they, they seem to be operating from a price point. I mean, you, you kind of go through each each of the films that you talk about in the book. You talk a bit about the development of the screenplay, you know, yeah. um, uh, wh- wh- how maybe some of these things were in turnaround. Some of these things were being developed for years and years. Yeah. Then somebody takes it on and, and what the budget was. And I, I was struck by even adjusting for inflation, not the modesty of the budget, but it just felt like it was workable. And yeah. you combine that with someone like Joe Roth mm-hmm. saying to Michael Mann, like, is this movie going to make any money? And Michael Mann's like, probably not. Yeah. And Joe Roth's response is, fuck it, let's make it anyway. Right. Right. Doesn't let's be seem legends. like yeah. something, you know, we get a lot of anymore. No, I mean, there's not a single person at that point was like, what about shareholder value? Like, how do we brand this? Like, The Insiders, you know, it's a great movie. It's one of my favorite movies of that year, but it's an R-rated look at, like, the tobacco industry that, unless they took some huge leaps, was not going to have a sequel or a TV spinoff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it's, like, it's a really expensive movie, and it's two huge stars, and it's Russell Crowe, like, when he's, and, you know, as you guys have talked on this show a lot about the peak of Russell Crowe, it's, like, that was, like, that so, was a huge so sad that that's what we've talked about you, a lot. I've, I think on both your shows, I heard a lot of Russell, a little bit of Russell Crowe talk. I mean, he was once a very important man. He was. He could be again. Now he's Roger Ailes. Who yeah. knows? But it's, like, you know, that was a really expensive, pricey movie, and it's a giant corporation making a movie about the news organization of another corporation and also taking on the tobacco war. I mean, like, there's so many red flags now where it's like, if you wrote this as an email, as an idea, someone would be like, delete, delete. I don't want to, <laughs> this idea should go forward. And it's like, you know, and to the extent that this would be a documentary now, but a huge, like, $60, 70000000 feature that gives Michael Mann 
multiple countries to shoot in and yeah. like five or six months of shooting. I got to take Pacino to Israel. Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> yeah, we got to go, go to Israel for a couple of days of Pacino. It's like, that's that's a huge expenditure right there. So that is a movie that certainly feels like the studios were like, we got to make some good movies. Like we can't just make, we can't just keep making money. And I think, I do think they thought that The Insider would make some money, which is a little crazy, but maybe they were like, hey, All the President's Men was a hit. Maybe this could be too, you know? What was the movie that you were most excited to sink your teeth into once you decided to do this? Um, I would we're probably Fight Club and Eyes Wide Shut just because I really am fascinated by David Fincher. He's just an interesting filmmaker. He's an interesting guy. I'd interviewed him a couple times before for when I was at Wired, and I just I like talking to him even though I always feel like he's kind of quietly making fun of you, which is actually <laughs> fine. He's an incredibly smart, funny guy, and it's only when you read the transcript afterward you're like, oh, he is witheringly smart. Um, but I think Fight Club was like just one of those movies where it felt at the time. It just I can't believe that movie got made. It's I remember seeing it on opening night and feeling really disturbed by it and kind of pummeled by it, but also weirdly kind of excited that it existed. Um, and I think Eyes Wide Shut's the same thing where I, I, I think people have sort of forgotten what a cultural phenomenon that movie yeah. was before it opened. Like I worked in time, near Times Square and like there's a giant Eyes Wide Shut billboard over 53rd Street or whatever for like three months. It's like this movie is coming. Like this trailer was a huge deal. It was that and The Phantom Menace were the two movies that I had spent two or three years online being like, what is this movie about? What is Stanley Kubrick doing? Is like, it's They were really kind of these interesting movies to sort of watch from a distance, which is the way we do it now online all day. But those two movies in particular, and I, and I actually really like Eyes Wide Shut, even though it's kind of a weird, it's not a movie I love, yet I keep, if it's on, I just keep watching it and getting pulled into it. I love how in the book, different characters and different movies wind up popping up in different chapters for different reasons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, Nicole Kidman is in Blue Room, right? Which oh, is yeah. being directed by Sam Mendes, and it's like her come-down role. Like, she needed to, like, right. recalibrate <laughs> after Eyes Wide Shut. And Sam Mendes is making that and is kind of looking for something to do when American yeah. Beauty comes along. It's like, it's really interesting to to see how those those things all sort of uh, inform one another in that way. And even Kubrick in a couple ways and. He looms over some of these filmmakers. There's that great oh, yeah. anecdote of Paul Thomas Anderson going out to right. dinner with Warren Beatty uh, before he makes Magnolia and Coppola coming up to him yeah. and saying, like, this is the time when you can make the, the thing you want to make because there's no expectations. Like, people will give you money because you're a success, but you're not going to be locked in. I mean, just like these little moments that I just feel like almost impossible to conceive of now. Well, it's also like you think of like Sofia Coppola, who is, you know, married Spike Jones that year. So she's on the set of Three Kings. Mm -hmm. um, the camouflage shirt that David O. Russell wears during shooting, she eventually adapts for Bill Murray's character in Lost in Translation. <laughs> but she's right. also, she makes Virgin Suicides that year, or releases it a can. And she's also in The Phantom Menace very briefly. And I think it speaks to the fact that, like, a lot of these filmmakers were friends. I mean, yeah. I would talk to someone like Alexander Payne or Kimberly Pierce or David O. Russell, and they would all say, oh, it was a photo of us, all five or six of us at some party that year. And they really were kind of a community because they were all, most of these filmmakers were kind of getting their first big shot or their first movie. I mean, like, Spike Jones, Kimberly Pierce, you know, M. Night Shyamalan had made two small films, but nothing like The Sixth Sense. David O. Russell had made, you know, two indie movies, but this was a huge one. And they're Brothers showing movie. each other their movies. Yeah. They're giving notes. I mean, Catherine Hardwick, who yeah. going to do 13. She's the production designer on Three Kings. Yeah. It's, it's like a— Pinterest and being John Malkovich. He's, yeah. been for, he's been very briefly. <laughs> it's one of my favorite cameos in that movie, yeah. I was just going to say, one of the things that's most interesting to me looking back on the year and reading some of the chapters in the book is a lot of the movies that we were told were important at that time— now don't seem very yeah, important. Definitely. Mm. You know, American Beauty, Chris, you just mentioned, thinking of movies like The Green Mile. Like, there were a lot of things that seemed uh, prestige for lack of a better word. Yeah. And some of the movies that maybe were underdogs or were a little misunderstood or were operating under this cloud of anxiety, like Fight Club you write about, yeah. Eyes Wide Shut you write about, those are the movies that have persisted. What is that, like, what was it like to re-explore things that were Best Picture winners but we know to be maybe not as successful as we thought they were? The Green Mile was definitely um, a hard movie to rewatch, and I was actually I was like, I'll rewatch it, and then I'll see where I can fit in the book, and then I rewatched it over three mornings for like an hour each. I was like, I can't do this. I just don't. It was one of those things where I'm like, this was a this in the Cider House rules were up for Best Picture, um, and I like a lot of people involved with both those movies, but those were not great films. I mean, American Beauty was trickier because I saw that at a screening when I was like a young Entertainment Weekly whatever I was back then, whatever position I had. And I was like, this is terrible. I just didn't like it at all. I totally resented the whole idea of the suburbs being dark. But I have to say, as much as I was dreading it, I probably rewatched it four or five times while doing this book. And the fact is, so many of the ideas in that book, in that movie that we kind of made fun of, like, oh, yeah, the skeevy middle-aged yeah. guy, or, oh, yeah, the neo-Nazis are living next door in the suburbs. I'm like, those feel pretty, actually feel like sadly kind of spot on now. I also think 
American Beauty is a really good-looking movie, and people – I remember at the time people were kind of making fun of it, but it was like, this movie won Best Picture because now we have screeners, and this looks like a TV show. And I was like, you know what? I don't think it looks like a TV show. Conrad Hall shoots it really well, and I think if you look at that movie on a small screen, you do kind of see, like, what prestige TV would wind up looking for. Everything's framed really beautifully. Yeah. I still have a lot of problems with that movie. They're mostly kind of with the performance, some of the performances. Um, but I, that was the one movie where I even had friends who were like, oh, how are you going to deal with American Beauty again? I was like, I didn't mind it quite so much. The Green Mile, though – was kind of torturous. Um, and certainly going back and realizing, oh, yeah, Election was a huge bomb. Office Space was a huge bomb. Fight Club, I'd forgotten that that was almost, for the most part, not a bomb, but it was like Fincher and Pitt's one of their lowest grossing movies. So it is weird how in 20 years, like some of these movies have become these cultural touchstones that when I've talked to people who are in their 20s, they just assume that Office Space was like the way Airplane was when we were kids. Like it was a huge <laughs> right. smash hit because right. why wouldn't it be? It's been in your life for 20 years now. Everyone copied it and there's a million Lumberg memes every day. But these movies fought to get attention back then, which is really kind of strange to think about. And then they they also had something that we, I don't think, talk about much anymore, which is this second life of the DVD yeah. home entertainment market. And we're all of the age where we used to collect these things. I mean, we used to, I mean, Sean, especially, I know that like you have like this like amazing DVD collection that it's you very still- sad. One <laughs> no, of the but, saddest uh, things that exists. But it actually gave things like Office Space, and I can't remember the film uh, that I was reading about last night from the book, but I, maybe Lorenzo Di Bonaventura was talking about- Three Kings had a huge DVD, I knew, and I yeah. Knew, I knew yeah. it would do well on DVD or yeah. something like that. And so many of the films here, like Office Space and like Fight Club, that lived on and became basically pre-internet memes because you would just say the dialogue to your friends yeah. because they had such a long cable life and because people just like, this is one of three movies I have that's just, I just put it on yeah, and it's yeah. just on on a loop. It does seem like that calculation to make something that could have a second life has vanished a little bit. I completely agree. I, it's interesting. A lot of the movies that I think you write about so well are total dorm room classics. Mm. And some of them are because they were studio movies that didn't yeah. succeed. But then you also spend a lot of time, especially in the beginning of the book, writing about Sundance and festivals mm. and this kind of like air of anxiety that movies had where you would start to hear about them at festivals. But if you were like me, right. you were living in the <laughs> suburbs, you were like, I have no access to yeah, that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, was it easier to reconstruct kind of the hype machine around movies and understand really what was actually happening to something like Blair Witch, for example? It was for me because I... I graduated from college in 99s, but I spent the last three or four years of my college life completely obsessed with Ain't It Cool News and Dark Horizons and Premiere and Entertainment Weekly. So I was following all these things, and I had the same anxiety, too, where I would, like, I would read an article about a movie, and I would, like, clip it out. Because otherwise, you're like, i got to wait five or six yeah. months until it comes out. And then at the same time, I was also working at a video store through the 90s, so I would actually start getting, like, these screeners early. But I certainly – I remember that feeling, like, when a big movie would come out, and you're like, if I don't see it now – I have to wait six months? Like, yeah. it, I feel like that's completely gone. And I think it's unfortunate because I do think the streaming windows now, which is like the amount of time before something comes out and then it's on, you know, on whatever you watch on Netflix or Amazon, is so short that I think people are like, I don't need to see that now. Whereas when a movie like Three Kings came out, I remember I saw it at a screening and I took my friend next week. I was like, you've got to see this movie like right now. This is insane and amazing and you're going to love it. And I don't know if that quite ha – I don't know if people even see movies twice in the theater anymore unless they're, like, huge tentpole films. I'll be yeah. seeing Avengers Endgame for a second time tonight. So, you know, <laughs> you have a lot of free time. That's, that's true. true. <laughs> I'm curious about how – you know, obviously did tons and tons of interviews for this. As you're talking to people without naming names, like, how many of them would you say – or there's anybody that stood out to you that was like, yeah, this was important? Like, to how many of them were like – Oh, it's interesting that you think about this because I guess it's an anniversary, but like it didn't seem like any more different of a year than any other. Like, did people seem to grasp the importance of it? I think a lot of the filmmakers knew for sure because I think a lot of the filmmakers now know. A lot of them were very young or were kind of, you know, people like Kimberly Pierce or David O. Russell were not super young. They've been in the industry for a little bit or, been, or trying to make movies. But I think a lot of people look back now and go, oh, not, I know that's special because that kind of year is very hard to have now. And I think they know how much Hollywood has changed. I think some of the actors, I, I mean, I had interviews with people where they would be looking at the list, like, as I interviewed them, they'd be like, that movie was that year? That movie was that year? And I think yeah. they're kind of like, I think Kirsten Dunst was like, wait, really? These are all in the same year? That happened on our, when Bill and I did Colin Farrell. Oh, really? We were telling about it. He's like, oh, man, that's brilliant. <laughs> 
<laughs> I love eyes wide shut. <laughs> Is he? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, no, but I do. I do. Th- I think he's probably been to a few upstate New York parties like that. During, I think he would leave the set of Daredevil. He's got his own mask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fidelio Colin. I think a lot of them. I mean, a lot of these, like I said, a lot of these filmmakers, like really studied. I mean, people like Fincher and Kimberly Pierce and Alexander Payne. They love movies, but they're also the generation where there was all this access to Hollywood history, mm-hmm. and it was the Easy Riders, Raging Bull book, or was all the, this stuff was chronicled, and a lot of it happened during their lifetime. So they were very aware of what a year can mean. They're very aware of what film history and where movies sit. And they're all really super smart. I mean, they're all they're all still actively making stuff and they know what the show what the industry is like now versus 20, you know, 1999, whatever the hell the year the book's about. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think they realize now that it's a huge gulf. It doesn't feel like 20 years. It sometimes feels even further away. Yeah. What was it like writing about these sort of ephemeral aspects of 1999. So that's sort of non-movie, like Y2K and the internet and the advent of the way that we communicated about all this stuff. Because I feel like you very elegantly, like sort of briefly dot dash them at the beginning mm. of the book and at the beginning of chapters. But it also feels very embedded in the stories that the movies are telling too. Well, the book was actually supposed to be, I started out in 2016 wanting to do a book on Y2K. And then I wanted to do a book, I was sort of looking at 1999 and looking at all the events of that year. And I was like, oh, you could do one major event from each month of that year. And mm-hmm. you could do, because people forget, like 1999 was the year Trump talked about running for president and actually had this like kind of two month long trying it out campaign that was like on the cover of Newsweek and then he went on Larry King Live and stuff. So there was that, there was Y2K, there was Columbine, there was Napster launching that year. There was the, you know, Mia Hamm and the women's, there was yeah. all these interesting events so that's what I was thinking about writing about. So I had been researching that for like six to eight months, and I have all these great, like, if you guys want to borrow a bunch of, like, circa 1999 uh, Time magazines <laughs> and see how fat and thick those magazines used to be at a certain point. Um, and then at a certain point, my this editor was like, why don't you use the movies to view, to sort of look at the, those things in a bigger picture? But I like I guess the thing, like, I could watch Y2K stuff all day. I remember it. I was fascinated by it. I was in Times Square on Y2K working, and I was like, well, if you're going to blow up I guess this is the computers are going to go down I guess you may as well be here yeah Um, I was really I mean all that stuff it's like you know like I said I graduated college in 99 and what other year are you more like in the culture and you're trying to like be you're still sort of like who you were when you're a teenager a little bit but you're also trying to be a grown-up so you're really trying to like embrace the news and the world around you so I was very cognizant of all that stuff um but it's so much fun to go back and like, I'm just going to rewatch The Sopranos season one, quote unquote, as book research. Sure. Because why not? It started, that, it debuted <laughs> yeah. that year. I should rewatch it. And then like five seasons later, you're like, I've got to work on the book. But yeah, all that stuff's really fun. I mean, it is a culturally really interesting year. Well, it's also a year where pop culture truly, there was a one-to-one relationship between the cultural artifacts and the things that were happening in the world. That's mm-hmm. what I think my favorite parts about the book, like Sean's alluding to, is... Your ability to kind of draw these parallels between whether it's our burgeoning virtual selves in yeah. the Matrix or our greater awareness of the sort of deterioration of the nuclear family and American beauty and like mm. the Clinton Lewinsky yeah, and yeah. Joey Buttafuoco and, and Lorena Bobbitt and all this stuff that the kind of trashier tabloid stuff all the way up to the White House. Yeah. And the way that that's reflected in American beauty – I, do, I I would imagine that you would say no. In 2019, we are not making movies on a mass level that are very reflective of what it means to be alive right now. But I did want to talk to you a little bit about that. I mean, we're coming. This podcast is being recorded on Avengers Weekend. Mm. Game of Thrones is obviously dominating me and Sean's life to some extent. Sure, yeah. Uh, there are these like huge, almost. Uh, deafening cultural events, but I don't know how much they're actually telling us about what it's like to be alive in 2019. I don't know. I mean, I I, I have a weirdly sort of, I mean, I, I, I saw Avengers. I really enjoyed it. I keep up on Game of Thrones. I do think that when I think of the movies or films that I'm kind of walking away being like, oh, rattled by what I think mm-hmm. about life, it's like, it's like when I watched Diane this year, which is a great movie about death, or it's when I watched Her Smell, which mm-hmm. is a great movie about addiction. And I was like, these very smaller personal movies. I do think if you look through the last couple of years, there are a lot of movies, like whether it's Shoplifters or Minding the Gap, that I walk away from and I think about for months. Sure. But I also think about like I only have two people to talk to. <laughs> like it's like probably you two guys. It's like it's like we've talked who, about that. Who, who's yeah. going to talk yeah. about First Reformed with me? It's like it's a hard sell. And I do think it, the, not only were those movies back then directly, maybe unconsciously addressing all these weird hangups and issues we had, but they were so big that you could walk out of the Matrix and into your office and be like, okay, let's talk about the Matrix because we all saw it this that was weekend. great. I mean, you have like a couple of mentions of like the kinds of post theater theater lobby basically conventions people were having to like break down the matrix or to like shake each other back to life after Blair Witch I mean you write about this stuff on some like more or less a weekly basis you do a podcast about movies Sean like 
Do you feel that? Or do you feel like you just have to look at it in a different way to get like the meaning from these movies? It's a complex question. I think it depends on where you're looking and how you're getting it. I think the, the, the point that Brian is making is right, which is that there are still lots of great movies. They're seen maybe at a smaller rate than they are. I think that there is something missing in the concept of original. That's mm. That feels like what's the sixth sense and the matrix are original ideas that are still meant to be mass entertainments. And the, a lot of the anxiety that you hear about when you talk to filmmakers, you talk to people who work in Hollywood, is I wish we could get a new movie with a big budget that is meant to appeal to teenagers and also guys in their 40s and also moms in their 70s and that can expand your mind and say something about the culture, but that doesn't feel iterative. Yeah. And obviously The Matrix ultimately became iterative in many ways. M. Night Shyamalan became iterative. But those guys got somehow got through the castle doors and got yeah. to, they got their 60 or 80 million to make the movie. And that's just not as much of an opportunity anymore. The other thing that is happening, I wonder how you feel about this, Brian. There's more places to put things now. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there is ultimately less quality control. So you have a lot of streaming platforms. You have a, a lot of budgets for a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff gets made on a frequent basis, yeah. whether it's movies or TV. But inevitably, a lot of things feel a little bit less looked after. Hmm. And I think one of the subtexts of your book is that the studio system in many ways was still very smart and successful in yeah. the 90s. And the concept of like getting notes mm-hmm. and making making the product better for more people Absolutely. does have upside. That's often the boogeyman. But mm-hmm. I, did you get that sense too that maybe there's something lost yeah. in that system? I think so. And I think these movies are very hard to make. And with good, I mean, David O. Russell talks a lot about, you know, people Warner Brothers did not want Three Kings to be made and there was just tons of fights. I mean, Fight Club... I think all of Fincher's movies tend to have an element of combative back and forth in the studio. But these were all, you know, they were, for the most part, these were smart filmmakers arguing with very smart executives. And a movie like Boys Don't Cry was like four or five years of Kimberly Pierce's life trying to make this movie and yeah. getting turned down for money. And I think eventually when you are really – when you are that determined to make something but also you face those obstacles and you've overcome them, you're eventually – what you wind up shooting and they made, they just shoot that movie very quickly, you are ready to film. Like you are – it is like – it is absolutely like I am ready to make this movie. I've waited five – literally waited five years to make it. Bam. And you don't really have like – you have your own sort of built-in quality control that I think comes from – having to sit on movies for a long time. And, you know, like The Matrix took years and years. It took the Wachowskis years to get Warner Brothers to understand it. Um, But I do think, I do think, you know, I I really don't mean to, you know, begrudge modern film studio execs because I think it's very hard. But I do wonder how many modern film, you know, studio execs like go home at night and just watch an old movie. You're like, I'm going to watch The Conversation because I need to to feel that part of me again. I need to sort of watch a movie I love. And I don't know how much they go back and watch that or they watch like – I've got to watch Ugly Dolls Part 2, look at the script for it, because we really want to get this in development. Yeah. And it's like Q3 2021 is going to be very Ugly Dolls. Well, you know? it's just, I think, and you guys both have mentioned this in the course of this conversation too, but this is just like, I remember seeing these, this is one of the last times that I remember going to the same movies over and over again yeah. in the course of a summer. Yeah. Or, you know, if I loved something, I was like, I'm definitely going to go see that again in a couple of weeks. I'll catch a matinee when I have a day off from my record store job or yeah. something like that. You know, like... Just to understand them. Like, Malkovich, I was like, I walked down, I was like, I gotta see, I don't even understand. There was also like, nothing on TV. Yeah, exactly. It's not like That's I was right, like, yeah. oh, I can't, I gotta get home to watch. I mean, There's like, no, no internet in your pocket. Yeah, and what I didn't have internet in my pocket. So, like, these things wound up being, like... Objects of obsession that I think that even though that there are things like Thrones that we can talk about for six hours a day or Avengers, which we will talk about for weeks on end, there there isn't like that office space thing of like, man, that was like, I wouldn't watch if what, you know, what we do in the shadows is a kind of maybe a good example of like a movie that came out a couple years ago. It was really funny. I love the show version of it. I, I don't know that my level of engagement with that would ever approach what office space was because there's just too much other crap you're competing. busier yeah. there's a lot of other stuff you don't have your maybe, in the shadows dvd that's just sitting there like i'm gonna put this on again because this is all i've got yes. whereas the office space dvd you're like it's already in the player may as well watch it again for like the third time this year i have as much familiarity with the the dvd menu screens of these movies <laughs> yeah. as i do with the movies themselves because they were exactly what you're saying brian they were just sort of there they yeah. were present at all times and now what's there to me is a cue it's an it's always yeah. a cue of what's next yeah. i have much more familiarity with that Netflix screen or my personal direct TV queue than I do, you know, the peculiarities of a physical object. It's a very weird time. I mean, do you sense that this is an un- irreversible future? You know, that this is how things will go? I realize that's a kind of a vast question, but it's something we're thinking about all the time. I don't know. I mean, I actually write, as a, a couple weeks ago, I read this book, which you guys would both love, and a lot of your readers would love it too, called City of Nets, which is all about Hollywood in the 40s. And it's like one of the best concise, compact 
just discussions of Hollywood history. It's super fun. It's really gossipy, possibly apocryphal. But is the whole idea of re- reminding yourself like, oh, yeah, this this is an industry. It's like a 100-year-old industry plus now. It's like it goes through so many cycles. And people back when the Westerns were big were like, Westerns are never going to die. Musicals are never going to die. And now we have people saying, getting angry on Twitter, being like, how dare you say superhero movies will yeah. one day not be huge. And it's like, you know what? At some point – these, this is a very cyclical industry, and pop culture is very cyclical. Which I don't. What's what's weird for me is like, I don't know where Netflix and I mean, there's never been something like Netflix and Amazon. It's like it's it's as if there's like a two planet battle in space for a million years, and all of a sudden it's like here's these third planets showing up. Like, oh, we don't know what the dynamic is. I mean, I really do think that living in LA and seeing Netflix putting up billboards everywhere and taking over the space culturally and geographically is that is kind of that's different. I mean, I don't know how you sort of recycle back into like an older sort of whatever Hollywood was 20 40 years ago from that. It's just very, you know, and while I was working on the book like, you know, Disney bought Fox, which is crazy. It's yeah. like that's like that to me is saying that if you told me 3 years ago, it would be like a, a really weird idiocracy type sort of situation, but it's becoming like a five or six company town where it used to be much, much bigger company town. Yeah. We're only just starting to think about the ways in which that's going to affect the movies we're watching. I mean, there was a piece, I think it was in The Hollywood Reporter yesterday, about movies on the Fox slate that Disney were basically either selling off or straight up just closing down. Yeah. And there was even, like, I'm sure, like, a... (laughs) It was just a great bit. I'm not sure if it's true of, like, Disney's film chief, Alan Horn, being like, do they have to smoke in West Side Story? Yeah, which is yeah, which mm-hmm. is just like this is fantastic. Disney shit, made The Insider twenty years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> I know. it's like yeah, it's a movie. That, it's like are, is smoking not going to exist in Disney movies? We're gonna pretend it's actually something that people do. Yeah, I find Disney a little unnerving. I find Netflix a little unnerving. I don't like big corporations in general, and certainly. I like a lot of stuff they make, so it's very weird for me. Like, I wish I could say, yes, everything's going to bounce back, and we're going to get another year where you get a movie like Election, where you get like a you know an eighteen, nineteen million dollar comedy that's just really brilliant and smart and plays and becomes a phenomenon years later. I don't know if that can quite happen again. There's, there's so many factors that could that are pushing against it, but people do want people do want these kind of stories. Like, it's just a lot of it has transferred to TV. And mm-hmm. it's not like people are like, I want really stupid stuff. It's like, they want stuff that's really challenging. It's just that sometimes they're like, I'd rather see that as a 10-hour FX miniseries than as a 95-minute movie. Which... And then they're like, here's your unnecessary second season of it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these filmmakers, like I said, they're all, you know, Fincher and Soderbergh and Kimberly Pierce and Eduardo Sanchez, who co-directed Blair Witch. So many of these filmmakers are, in t- are working in TV now. Also, David these... O. Russell was supposed to be David going to Amazon. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a big Amazon. That was the Weinstein thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Who was the... Just the most fun person to talk to. Um, David Fincher is really fun. Michael Mann was kind of a trip because he doesn't he doesn't do a lot of interviews. Feel free to talk about this as much as you want. Oh, I love. I mean, I love. I, look, I love Michael Mann. I think you know he's kind of. I think this is known, but he also likes to record interviews when you. Which it was just saying some people more and more people do now. If you yeah. record them, they record you. George Lucas used to do that, but it was like you know he's not someone who does a lot of interviews because he's usually off making Miami Vice and. <laughs> You know, watching jumbo jets or coordinating his crazy <laughs> schedule of I don't even know how many DE agents for fun. Yeah. I gotta say, Miami Vice. I mean, I I know there's some pro and con on Miami Vice and the Ringer, gen- but I love that movie, and that's like the one movie where I'm like, if I could be a fly on the wall in that movie, it's like that would be to watch Michael Mann uh, do that would be remarkable. But he's you just gave Chris all the Infinity Gems. Just I know, now, yeah. Just, he feels so powerful. I, I know, snapping. I know. I'm, I know when I'm in the Vice room. I know when I'm in. The, I know when I'm in a safe space to talk about Miami Vice. That's but, actually. Good, good second name for this podcast. Room, room, yeah, wind yeah. it out, down and start it up again. But I had to really make a case to his to his team that like this will be worth his time, and I really love the insider. And mm-hmm. so, but the thing was like they were like, well, um, he'd really like you to rewatch the movie first. And I was like, oh, I have you know I have the DVD right here. He's like, no, no, he wants you to come to come to a screening. So I go this is like two, almost a year and a half ago. So I go to the Fox lot, which is always, even if you're, I'm not a rube, like I've been in Hollywood, I really, but this, it's pretty fun to no, go to man, the Fox they, lot. It's super Paramount cool. Paramount and Fox and oh, a couple of these awesome. places still have like, a, so holy fun. shit. And I get into this, this, this thing called the Little Theater on Fox, which Disney has probably turned into like the Lilo and Stitch vomitory or whatever the hell they do now. I'm sure it's being turned into like, I don't know, Bob Iger's private bathroom. Yeah. But um, The Little Theater is a great place to see a movie. Little yeah, Theater is great, a lot of yeah. movies there. Um, and I think it's where they, and it was part of the book history because I think Fight Club had a very tough screening there on Fox. Um, 
But so I get in there, and it's just me, and this guy comes out, and he's like, all right, so hi, this is, uh, you're about to watch this 35 millimeter print of The Insider from Michael Mann's private collection. We screened it last night to make sure, and I was like, this is insane. This is like, I'm like, sir, you are really, I, I am just a, uh, I do not deserve to be here. <laughs> but they're like, so, but I've been to screening rooms, and like, they, they, they sat me next to um, this, there's a phone and a guy in the projection booth, and they're like, um, back in the projection booth is a, I don't know, Randy, like, it's Randy, and if you can just stop and want to play back a reel at any time, and I was like, well, this is pretty cool, and I was like, I think I won't need that. And then about an hour and a half in The Insider, which is like a two and a half hour movie, I was like, Randy, I think I'd like to take a bathroom break. And I just like walked around the Fox lot for 10 minutes and walked back. And I was like, this is the most decadent. I'm like, if Michael Mann is trying to like get in my good graces about The Insider, which by the way, I was already, yeah. I was like, well done, sir. You've convinced like, yeah. me. And, I, and it was fun to talk to because I don't think he revisited this movie. I mean, in a long time. And I think, you know, I think a lot of these filmmakers, if you dig a little bit, they suddenly have, they go from being like, I don't really remember. And then they suddenly have 18 stories. So he was really interesting to talk to. Um, He's a very smart guy. Can I uh, ask about one of the people in the yeah. book that I thought was fascinating? It was Lorenzo Di Bonaventura. Yeah, he was great. Who worked at Warner's and worked on yeah. Matrix, right? Did he work he, on other stuff there? He was he well, the three movies in the book that he worked on a lot were Iron Giant, uh, Three Kings, and The Matrix. He yeah. also worked on Deep Blue Sea that year, which I love that movie and could not uh, get that in the in the book, sadly. And then he he has gone on to produce the Transformers yeah. movies and has been a, very successful. But what what, what was he like? Because I'm always curious about these sort of guys who are on the margins. But I mean, obviously, you see their name before the movie starts but he worked with Joel Silver to get The Matrix made yeah and uh, you know I'm always fascinated when a guy like he works on Three Kings and The Matrix and he also made Dark of the Moon I mean like which is not a not like um, it's not a qualitative judgment per se, but I'm curious what kind of character he was I've interviewed him a couple of times too I'm curious what your take he's is exactly on him. What, I mean he's exactly yeah. what you would hope he's yeah. got a, a beautiful I think he's on the Paramount line he's got a beautiful like corner office with tons of memorabilia and he just sit, he just sits down and you just <laughs> He's got gossip about everyone really good. He's very smart. He's a very smart guy. Mm -hmm. He really is one of those guys, like, I think that generation of executives, whether it's him or Amy Pascal or a lot of other people, like, they really do, they're super smart business-wise, but they really did grow up on movies. And they're they, movie they, geniuses. Yeah, they're really, yeah. yeah. And he's, you know, he was like, I think he was working on the Meg at that point. Mm -hmm. It was like a year before it came out. And I was like, I really had a lot of Meg-specific questions that I didn't get to ask him. But he's, <laughs> you know, I think he's proud of these films, but also, like, he's also at this point now where it's like, he can tell the stories. He can talk about you know, going to the hotel and trying to get, you know, the Wachowskis trying to convince Val Kilmer to play Morpheus yeah. and Val Kilmer being like, what if the movie is all about Morpheus? And then, you know, he can tell that, tell these stories. Now he's worked with everyone. He's got all the great signed posters. So like that generation of, of executives, I would like, I could talk to them forever or, or I could just put the recorder down and let them talk because they've worked, they've, they know where all the bodies are buried and they probably helped, you know, revive some of them yeah, later. And, exactly. You know, They're like kings. Yeah. And he made three really difficult movies that year. The Iron Giant was like another troubled movie that the budget got cut and really it was not doing well. And then the internet kind of – that era of internet, like Ain't It Cool News, kind of helped save that movie by writing about a leaked print of it. And so he went through like every sort of – Every sort of iteration of the industry, but that '90s, he was definitely like one of the real big guys. And I want to talk to Joel Silver, who I saw at the Avengers premiere on Monday. Did you really? Yes, wearing an incredibly—I um, don't—it wasn't bedazzled, but a very like interesting kind of like tracksuit, very <laughs> glittery, looking very Joel Silverly. And I almost wanted to be like, "Hey, I, just want, I don't know what you yell at him." You go, "Matrix man!" Like, what do you do? Like, just point and go, Joel Silver, die hard. Um, but I couldn't get him. But but Lorenzo was really really. Do good. you have any Lorenzo tales you want to? You, did you talk to him for when you did the Michael Bay? I, I did. Oh, yeah, so yeah. When I wrote when I wrote about Michael. Michael Bay and I talked to him for quite a long time, like two hours. And I talked to him for two hours office, too. Yeah, and uh, he was wonderful. He has a million stories. Yeah, he was very kind in a yeah. way that maybe a lot of those guys are not often very kind. I mean, you know, he's you're being worked in a way when you're doing sure. an interview yeah, like yeah. that. But um, he he was just he was an old school Hollywood showman in a way. Yeah. Relationships are important, but he's also comfortable telling the truth, which is like that's those are the best interviews. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. You know, you mentioned the Iron Giant. The Iron Giant we saw last year. Um, in a Steven Spielberg movie, right, yeah, which yeah. was incredibly weird in Ready Player One. Mm. Um, and I do feel like a lot of these movies have gone on to be commodified or recontextualized in any significant way. Did you get the sense that people felt like there was like something lost with from that time or that they were kind of comfortable with where their work had gotten to, the way it was perceived? I think some people like Mike Judge and Fincher and Edward Norton are 
very happy that those movies are part of the culture now. It's interesting because I talked to a, a couple of people f- who were involved with The Matrix, and I was like, so what do you think of, you know, red pill culture yeah. and men's rights? And they're like, they had none of them had heard of it. Like, I think I sent a couple of them, like, articles afterward, like, just so you know, this is kind of, um, but I don't think it was on. <laughs> you ruined The Matrix. I know, I'm sorry I ruined The Matrix for you. Um, but I don't think, you know, I think also there, you know, a lot of these filmmakers and executives aren't on the internet all day and aren't, they aren't thinking about these movies for the last 20 years the way we are. We are. Yeah. So it's like if you if you you know it's like if you start saying, well, you know, elections really became really popped up. So and so, you know, people might not know that they might not be aware of its kind of its legacy. Though I think with election, they actually are kind of aware. Um, but I th- I think most people are. Pr- I mean, I think that's why I got as many people as I did because like who wouldn't want to talk about? I mean, these are underdog. Some of these movies were underdog stories. Election is an underdog story. It's like. The, the accounts differ from everyone I talked to, but at least some people really felt that movie was going to go direct-to-video, which yeah. is crazy. I mean, it's for a movie like that, which we all, I think, it is absolutely my favorite movie that year. Um, it's Election hard, is. Election is, yeah. I mean, it's a tough list to make, but I really do think that that movie is kind of like, I don't know what you would change from it now. I sure. watch it, and I'm like, this is kind of a perfect movie. Um, but, you know, these were all like, these films are all challenges, so when you're talking to people about like their greatest, their greatest victory, that's what Fight Club kind of is. I mean, you know, it's like, it was really Fincher was really beat up in the industry, and people thought that movie was dangerous. And now it's like, who doesn't? But know just even Fight the Club? idea of making a dangerous movie now yeah, is almost kind of surprising. I, I do want to end with one note that's probably of only interest to like the three of us and like nineteen other people working. Miami Vice. Had one, <laughs> no, one of the one of the things that I know from talking to you over the course of writing this book, but you can also feel it in the book, is that it's a subtle love letter to a certain era of movie. Media, yeah, and and popular culture journalism, yeah, and uh, all these things that I think that you and me and Sean uh, and Andy grew up on movie yeah. line premiere, oh, movie line, uh, yeah, the news and notes, like movie news thing that would be, that would be uh, in the Sunday. Sunday Inquirer. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they would just sort mm-hmm. of mention, like, Tom Hanks is making a league yeah. of their own. And, you know, like, and you would just be like, well, I'm going to take that piece of information and think about it for three months yeah. now. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. Ar- Ar- Army Archard on E. Oh, yeah, him yeah. All the time yeah. and feeling like that guy has a lot of information I need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that era. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that part of the research for the book? So outside of the interviews, I know that you did a lot of reading of stuff that may not be digitized. Digitized, You know, this, this last moment of magazine movie journalism before everything kind of moves online. And we all went through very many iterations of how do we get this magazine on the website? You know? Yeah. <laughs> and now that's obviously over and done with, but there's a real affection for old Entertainment Weekly, old sure. movie line, old premiere. Can you talk a little bit about the, the physical media that you encountered making this book? I have a lot of it. I mean, I, it, but it's also, it's very <laughs> Does personal. Does anybody want to buy this Yeah, I have magazine. the Wild Wild West uh, uh, Cinescape or whatever. Uh, we have a lot of star logs that I don't think I'm going to be rereading. But like, you know, stuff like Entertainment Weekly, like I started, you know, I left college, I had two weeks, and I started Entertainment Weekly June 1st, 1999. Like that was my first job. Yeah. And to me, that's like, there's this famous Simpsons where like Bart goes to the Mad Magazine office and he's like, he closes the door and he realized that it's basically just like living in Mad Magazine. And when I loved Entertainment Weekly and I went to work there. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm surrounded by all these like brilliant people. And all they want to do all day is talk about movies and TV and music. And I think I, I grew up reading that. And that's how I learned about Hollywood. There was, I mean, I, again, Ain't It Cool News and all those sites came around when I was a little older, but I had the same experience of like my mom was one of the first people to get Premiere Magazine. We had the first issue. We had the entire, we got it for like 15 years and I would just get it. And I would almost get it. I would almost sneak it from the mail before she could read it. And I would just be like, "Wow, Lorenzo's oil. What's this going to be like?" <laughs> like? But you would read all these previews, and you're like, you're "Like, I got to, I got to get my calendar out because, like, I, I don't know what Benny and June's going to be about." But man, look at this! This onset report makes this sound amazing. <laughs> but I do kind of miss like Johnny Depp's best work. Yeah, I mean, now <laughs> movies are sold. It's like, it's like, it's like in- constant updates online and these, uh-huh. this, you know we all know the stars use Instagram and they tweet out on set stuff and I do kind of miss the whole idea of like it just kind of came in three phases like you heard it might happen they were announced it was going to happen and it's happening and you're like I got to go see this movie and, yeah. I, and I miss that and I love having and a lot of these articles are not on, the Premiere Magazine is not online which is a real shame a lot of the archives a lot of EW's archives are, are a little messy and glitchy um, and stuff like Movie Line which I was like oh yeah Movie Line I have a bunch of those too and they're all really I think the actors back then the filmmakers were like I'm going to give this interview and I'm going to say whatever I want because how bad can it get? It'll be on the newsstands for a week or a month and then people will forget and about it. And a lot of the writing was pugnacious or yeah. it was like it had a lot of voice to it. And yeah, it was really no, they were not afraid to like get in the fights with, with the people they were writing about. And, you know, I think a lot of the coverage now is like, 
Well, Chris Hemsworth says that this one's going to be the best one yet. So guess what, guys? Our headline is, this is the best one yet. And it's like, well, let's have a little more skepticism, please, you know. Anything else for you? I just think it'd be insane not to buy Brian's book if yeah. you listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, like, you. it's just so obvious that you would enjoy it. So if you're not aware of it, you should definitely get it. Well, I appreciate it. I listened to your podcast a lot while I was writing this, and it was so fun to listen to all these shows, people actually talking about movies, because I was like, do people still care about movies? Wait a minute. Is this a they valid do. thing? We they care. do. They really we do, care. though. And yeah. it's like, yeah. that's been the fun thing about this book is like, oh, yeah, people still love new movies and old movies. And they, I, you know, it's like, it was great to listen to those on my, my long, lonely walks after reading Movie Line all morning <laughs> and watching the commentary track for The Green Mile and, tor- and Suffering. <laughs> well, you should be really proud of what Thanks, you did buddies. here, man. Uh, best movie year ever, Brian Raftery. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it in bookstores. You can get it at B. Dalton's. B. Dalton's. Oh, <laughs> it's a 90s throwback. <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Let's just take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, you'll hear my conversation with the filmmaker Roxanne Benjamin. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Philo. Say goodbye to expensive TV bills and horrible customer service with Philo. Philo is a new way to watch all the TV you love. Philo is the cheapest way to watch over 50 of your favorite channels like Discovery, Hallmark, HGTV, Food Network, AMC VH1, Nickelodeon Lifetime, and more. Never miss a minute of The Daily Show. Catch SpongeBob and Paw Patrol for the kids plus tons of classic shows and movies. Enjoy live and on-demand TV plus unlimited recording for only $20 a month and never miss a minute of the shows you love. Philo is great for watching TV from your TV, phone, or computer whenever you want. There's never been a better deal on cord-free, commitment-free, hassle-free TV. Philo is available on Roku, iOS, Fire TV, Android TV, and Apple TV. To start your free trial, visit philo.tv slash the watch. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash the watch. If you go now, you'll get 15% off the first month. Roxanne Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on The Watch. I've been like a huge fan of your stuff, Southbound, and like I love Southbound. (laughs) My wife and I like, it's become like a rewatchable in my house with my wife and I. It's like we check it out like once every like 18 months or so. That's awesome. Which is like the best kind of thing with these movies because you can kind of like live with them. And I think… I think body is like that too. You know, I think people are going to go back and have fun with this. Oh, that's great to hear. For years to come. Like, I imagine you're somebody who has a lot of stuff like percolating at any given time. So what was it about this idea and the story that you were like, okay, let's go. I want to go with this. I want to pursue this. Well, it was, it was kind of an idea I was kicking around for a while because I was working in a park. Okay. And, you know, a lot of the people, it's like part-time retirees and like students and, you know, it's not like you're trained in some hardcore way to to work at a, you know. Right. And it is an actual thing of like when bodies are found in a park that you have to stay with the body until like a coroner can get there and, and determine that there isn't any foul play involved in any way. So that idea just stuck with me of like, God, what would you do? Okay, so let's back up. You were working in a park when? Uh, like two, three years ago. Oh, wow. And yeah. then, so like, is it yeah. in the like mild amount of training that you get where they're like, FYI, no, this can happen? Well, it's like the the people who generally are out doing that, there are actual park rangers. And then there's, I mean, there's people who are like trained in, you know, EMT yeah. type stuff. But like, then there's also just, you know, the rest of us who are like handing out pamphlets and telling you where the bathroom is. So yeah. Um, there's definitely like a divide there, but it's still like you're a, you're a civil employee. Right. Like you have, you know, a civic duty to, you have to do like an oath basically. <laughs> yeah. That you're signing that like in times of like terror, both domestic and foreign that like you will be Secure available. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That or like, um, you know, that like they can call on you and it's like jury duty. If there's like some massive emergency, like the city can call on you to really? come like help. Yeah. But that would be like you're passing out blankets or like water bottles or something. Right. You're not like fighting on the front line of like some, you know, like So weird is this in thing. California? Yeah, this is in California. Okay. So I was like, do we get like a gun? Like, what is this? And they're like, no, you're like a museum guide. Like you don't do anything. Right. Like, but somehow still about? have like National Guard-esque Yeah, like, like in the thing that you have to sign, like that's what it says, which is like way, it sounds way more like- How long does this oath last for? Just out of curiosity. I know, it's a very good question. Can like Trump like, just be like, I need <laughs> the national parks. Yeah, exactly. All the like- To like carve Trumps this into is like, like- a whole other like category of like, now we're getting into like, this is like a weird other like TV show of like those people. <laughs> yes. And like they're getting called into like some Call of Duty-esque situation. 
situation, <laughs> but like Don't give all they the know how to Come do on. is like yeah. play Fortnite. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so this is the thing that I love about my favorite horror movies, I think, start with this kind of idea where mm-hmm. it's like you sort of start teasing out the different permutations of what yeah. is a basically like everyday kind of anxiety or nervousness. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes like a fear and then it becomes like this huge thing. Like, so you you start out and you you have this personal experience with it. So how do you how did you sort of come across the story that you wanted to tell, and especially the decision to make it so focused on just one character? Well, I I mean I grew up in the woods. I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, okay. so the woods is kind My of much more. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's a a much more like a familiar thing to me, mm-hmm. especially with like low budget filmmaking too, and like you don't have a lot of money for like production value. Like being out in nature gives you a lot of production value because you have these grand and like epic uh, things that you can do that like are not just like people in rooms, you know, yeah. like that kind of thing. And I just kept focusing on this idea of like, what would I do in that situation? Or like, what would anyone who is like not equipped that is like put into a situation where like they're told they have to deal with something? Like yeah. I immediately would be like, I'm out. See ya. Like right. I quit. Right. Good luck. Um, I'll draw you a map <laughs> and uh, you'll see it in the morning. But then, okay, so what if you didn't know your way back? Mm-hmm. What do you do then? Like then you're, it's kind of the story of of someone who wants to prove that they're capable of doing something that doesn't quite know if they are or not, but there's a little bit of bravado to it. Yeah. And then they're like, I can do this. And then it's like, oh wait, no, now you actually have to do it. And it's like, no, 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 I don't want to do it. I'm fine. I was kidding <laughs> about all that. Right. That was all smoke and mirrors. And now you actually have to do it. And it's like, oh, so you're put in this situation and and having to test yourself along the way. And it became, there's a way to tell this story, I think, that would be very much a straight psychological thriller. Mm-hmm. And there's a way to tell it that would be a straight horror movie. Mm-hmm. And to me, the most those were not the most interesting ways to tell that story because they all led to very, I don't want to say logical conclusions, but a very... Uh, predictable plot lines mm-hmm. and very predictable arcs. And what interested me was the idea of this being much more of like a, almost like a Jack London-esque story yeah. Yeah. of like the stuff I read in in middle school or like there was this book I, I remember reading called Julie of the Wolves. And then I feel like everyone had to read this book called Hatchet. Oh, I don't think I've ever heard that. that Did you see? Read that? Kyle? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, like, and I've mentioned this, like, a couple times to people, like, before seeing the movie, like, tell me if you've seen Hatchet, and, like, a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I forgot that book existed, (laughs) but it, like, weirdly was something that, like, a lot of people had to read in middle school, and it's about this boy who, like, his plane goes down, I can't remember quite specific details of, like, there's something with him and his relationship with his family or his father, and he's, like, stuck in the woods after this plane crash and has to survive with just this hatchet that he has, and that's it, and it's, like, him being tested against the elements and, like, discovering that he has like the ability and like the confidence and you know it's coming of age yeah and I just wanted to tell that same kind of story that you know is in a type of place that I grew up in that's for more based on a female character because I I don't feel like I saw those books when I was a kid yeah absolutely not so I imagine when you've got a movie like this and so much has to happen with this Wendy character that the casting is probably one of the most important things you're mm-hmm. going to do. I'm sure that's the case for every movie. But like, so at what point do you meet Karina and how, and how did the story change, if at all, once you did sort of settle, like, I think I'm going to do it with this person? Yeah. How do, and did you write any differently once you had this face and once you had like her movements and her kind of like way of handling stuff? Interestingly enough, I wrote it for Karina. Really? Yes. Okay, can you tell me a little Karina bit about- Karina doesn't really know that. <laughs> I did not. Oh, that's so cool because I yeah. never heard of her before, really. Well, she's never really acted yeah. in anything before. She's a model. Yeah. And she was in Southbound. And, uh, you know, most of the casting for the movies that I do is like networks of friends and like, who do we know? Okay. And who's available? And uh, who do we know who knows someone who might want to do something like this? Because, you know, they're low-budget things, and they're all kind of like, we're all in it together. And uh, myself and a lot of my fellow filmmakers who are involved in, like, the VHS and Southbound movies, like, we have, like, a lot of, like, comedy friends. Sure. You know, and that we end up putting in things. And um, for Southbound, uh, through uh, Fabian Therese, she knew Karina. Um, And I know Fabian because I used to know her when I was— like for, like going to Cafe Stella. Oh, that's and so funny. And she used funny. to work at this. She used to work at this restaurant yeah. like right down the street from my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, she was uh, always like, "Oh, I'm doing this like horror movie." Susan knew her as well somehow. Susan Burke, who was my co-writer on Southbound, who's right. a 
big in like the comedy scene, but um, Karina's not a comedian, but uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm going on a wrong track um, presenting her. But, uh, you know, we needed someone to play the girl who was like not there. Mm-hmm. in Southbound, like the girl who is all of Fabian's guilt is based upon sure. like this character that has passed away. And she brought up Karina and said that Karina was inter- interested in acting, but she hadn't really acted much before. I think she was in like one short film maybe. And so I had her in it, but she doesn't speak in the movie. She's this presence, right. but she and she has such a great presence and look on camera that I was like, I would love to use her in something. And then um, I was doing a reading, like a table read for this other project that I had and one of the actresses dropped out and I knew that she kind of lived in the area and I was like, hey, can you come fill in and read for this character for the table read that we're doing, you know, while I'm developing this script? And she like, and it was one of the lead characters of that script and she like knocked it out of the park. Really? Yeah, like knocked it out of the park and I was like, what are you doing? Like, (laughs) this whole time? And like, you didn't say anything? And she's been like working with an acting coach and it's what she really wants to do. And I just had no idea. Yeah. Because, you know, she like has Nike campaigns in Japan and like she has this whole other like career track as a model and she has this like vulnerability that hasn't been like, I don't know, kind of like spoiled, I think, by much of anything that's very unique, I think. Uh, and this unique mix of kind of like delicateness and strength. Yeah. That when I was thinking of the story idea, I was like, she kind of is perfect for this character. Yeah. And, you know, I had to have her read for it because she, so that my producers could see like a read on it, but I really wrote it around the idea of her being in it. That's really cool. Yeah. And it it was not a hard sell either because um, my producers uh, from Soapbox Films, um, Chris Allender and Dave Smith, like they're great and they're both filmmakers themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've I've worked with them on a couple different things now. So they are 100% like willing to be like, oh yeah, sure. Actress who's never acted in anything has to carry the whole film. We're in. <laughs> But they, you know, after they saw her audition tape, yeah. uh, for I had her do one of the main monologues that are that are on the rocks, and she just was so good at it. I wanted to ask you because I feel like all all movies that do predominantly outdoor shoots like this have some crazy like onset story of like the time you know we got attacked by bats or mm-hmm. like was there any like <laughs> oh. outdoor oh. stuff with the with the shoot. Oh. One would say, yes, I think you could you, say that. Are you going to start shooting like indoor oh, dramas now? <laughs> yeah, just people talking in rooms yeah. from here on out. <laughs> um, yeah, I really shoot myself in the foot with that whole like nature is my palette. We were shooting, we had an 11 day schedule to shoot this movie. Okay. Up on the side of the mountain in Idlewild, uh, which is like 6,500 feet above sea level right. in between like Los Angeles and Palm Springs. And it's kind of like a mini Big Bear-esque type place. And a very small town and we're hiking in and out every day, day, like, you know, just what we can carry basically to get to these locations in this like campground in this park up there. And it was around the time this, this was in like December of 2017, Okay, uh, late December of 2017. So we were like, we're going to be battling snow. And luckily it didn't snow because usually it does up there that time of year and it never snowed on us, thank God. But it was still like- Cold. Yeah, down in the 30s at night. And it's so funny because in the movie, it looks like sunny, you know, summer and she's hanging up these frostbite warning things (laughs) and like putting on this jacket. And I just want to like have subtitles under it that just say- it is freezing, FYI, trust me. it was me. cold, by the way. Yeah. yeah, like you can see your breath when you walk yeah. outside. It just doesn't look like it. But there was a lot of wildfires happening at the time. Yeah. And the big thing with the wildfires is wind. So whenever there's heavy winds, they shut down all the power like preemptively uh, to, to stop like potential power lines going down and causing wildfires, which is a major, major concern up there. And we got stuck in a windstorm that they literally created a new category for. <laughs> yeah. Are you which serious? is a purple. Purple, purple, color purple. Code purple. Code purple. Oh, man. Windstorm, which is like the new level of windstorm that did not exist before we were shooting, but oh existed while we were shooting. Did any of the stuff get damaged like while you were up yes, there? Yes. One of our pop-ups went over. Uh, part of it went through my DIT's car. Ugh. Like, it was crazy. Like, trees were coming down. The firemen had to come up and get our propane tank, propane heaters down off the side of the mountain. They shut the power down in the entire town. The entire town <laughs> so was without power. So even when you got back power. to the town, it's not like, yes. yeah. For two days, no power in the entire town. 
like nothing. So you can't run generators because it's a, a fire risk. So our 11 day, ridiculously short 11 day schedule turned into a nine and a half day schedule. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And like all of those scenes where you see Karina like walking through the meadow where it's supposed to be idyllic, like before things go horribly awry. Yeah. It's just like wind whipping around <laughs> everywhere. And all through her dance sequence, you can see it too. Like the trees are whipping around and stuff. So we got stuck with like a day and a half where we just couldn't shoot. And we ended up shooting like a lot of the interior tent stuff, like yeah. inside the nature center. Sure. And we just set the tent up in there and we were like, well, we'll try it. We'll just yeah, do it we'll way. just see what this does. So um, be- before you came in here, you were talking a little bit about uh, being down in Atlanta and working on Creep Show. How yeah. has that been going? I just wanted to ask before. Oh, it's go. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Greg Nicotero is the showrunner. Yeah. Uh, and shutters the network, and it's it's been great. You know, we have a Pittsburgh connection because I I went to Carnegie Mellon. Right. And I grew up north of Pittsburgh, and he's a Pittsburgh guy. And you know, that's he worked on all of Romero's original movies from growing up yeah. there. So yeah, we bonded over over our Pittsburgh roots. And it's like an anthology style, so you're doing mm-hmm. one, and other people are doing the other yeah. ones. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. There's a bunch of different directors on it, and it's you know based on the original Creep Show anthology and but it's a yeah as a tv show with with different directors and uh myself and david bruckner were both there at the same yeah, time shooting which on the great. show a while back yeah for yeah the ritual. yeah that's which really is cool. great because we've worked together so yeah. many times dave and i and so it was like being back on like southbound or or a vhs you right. know that's amazing well thank you so much for coming by body of brighton rock is just like a really really cool movie i hope people check out and oh, we'll hope to have you. you on again yeah i'd love to thanks thank you Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Philo. Philo has over 50 of your favorite channels like Science Channel, Hallmark, HGTV, AMC, MTV, Lifetime, and more. Enjoy live and on-demand TV plus unlimited recording for only $20 a month with no contract needed. Philo is available on Roku, iOS, Fire TV, Android TV, and Apple TV. Start your free trial instantly with just a phone number. To start your free trial, visit philo.tv slash the watch. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash the watch. And if you go now, you'll also get 15% off the first month. How about that?